But we are in a series called Shema. And we're talking about this word Shema, which means not just to hear, but to obey, right? This reflexive listening to the word of God. And tonight we are talking about effective conversion. That's with an A, effective conversion. Speaking to our affections, our emotions, and our heart. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalm 139. I'm going to do that real quick myself. Psalm 139. But shout out uh, CYP. I heard y'all are reading through the Bible in a year together. I'm trying to do the same myself. And if you're on that plan, no doubt you've read through the Israelites leaving Egypt, slavery for centuries, and making their way to the promised land. And the thing is that it's a 240-mile journey. You can make it in less than two weeks. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 1, it says it's an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to get where they needed to be. But how long does it take them? 40 years. Maybe that's new to you. You're thinking, how does that happen? Did they have the maps app, like stuck on avoid tolls, and they realized there was a much, much, much quicker way to get there? Well, what had happened was they got to the promised land the first time. They disobeyed God. And so God said, okay, you can go back into the wilderness until the next generation comes to maturity. You're just going to wander. Went in circles in the wilderness. But finally, in Deuteronomy 2, 3, God says, you've circled this mountain long enough. Now turn north. Break this circuit. This isn't NASCAR. Stop going in circles. Right? I have a point A to point B journey to my promises for you, the promised land, and I need you to turn north. And I share this tonight to open because some of us have been following Christ for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, however long it might be. But maybe you, have a, you don't have a 10-year-old faith. You have a one-year-old faith. You've lived over and over and over again because time isn't always indicative of growth. Time isn't always indicative of change. And for some of us, we need to turn. God is calling us to turn. We might think, well, I've had my Sinai experience. I'm in a covenant relationship with God. I'm good. But God has journeys for us to go on. He has, uh, as we talk about in this series, conversions for us to experience as we follow him and look more like Christ. In this series, Shema, we've pointed to the work of Donald Gelpie and his concept of five conversions. He speaks of sanctification as an ongoing conversion. And he says in this book on worship, not only initial, but ongoing conversion is the indispensable precondition for authentic Christian worship. And he defines conversion as turning. And so ongoing conversion are these turns we make in life to come into alignment with God. Turning from something and to something. So religious conversion, right? Not always the first, but the foremost conversion, Gelpie defines as turning from indifference to God revealed in Jesus Christ and toward a life of faith in him. That's how he defines that turn. And so tonight we're looking at effective conversion, which is when a person steps into personal responsibility for their emotional healing and development. And in Gelpie's uh, uh, definition of turning, we turn from neglect or even avoidance of our disordered emotions and toward the cultivation of a healthy emotional life. And what is required of us is not some turn northward, like for the Israelites, but a turn inward. And this turn happens when I realize I can't be spiritually healthy when I'm emotionally unhealthy. And my spiritual maturity is tied to my emotional maturity. As the early uh, uh, theologian in the church, Augustine, once asked, how can you draw close to God when you are far from yourself? Look, there are many facets of life that may not keep you from life eternally, but they will keep you from maturity in this life. And not taking responsibility for our emotions and emotional healing is certainly one of them. So I want to look tonight 
at Psalm 139. And David, as he wrestles with his emotions and his development, I'm going to read the whole thing because it's the word of God. I'm going to make no apologies. <laughs> Psalm 139, hopefully you're there. It says, oh, Lord, you have examined my heart. You know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You'll place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand, and when I wake up, you are still with me. Oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked, get out of my life. You murderers, they blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with a total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. Then I love how he closes. Search me, oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you, and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Come on, let's pray. Let's just pray this prayer for ourselves tonight. God, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So good. But you know, everybody always wants a, a family update when I see them on the weekend. Shout out to actually Hunter Agate too, doing online sound for us. First time I've seen him in a year, he wanted the family update. Everybody always wants the family update. Here's the update you didn't know you needed. Raj is now three plus years into his binge of Blue Planet season two. Not season one, Blue Planet season two. If you've been around here long enough, you know my son, he's on the spectrum. He loves shows about nature, specifically the ocean, and very specifically narrated by David Attenborough, his iconic British accent. There are so many other specials about animals he loves, but they're narrated by like Sigourney Weaver or Natalie Portman or Pierce Brosnan. And as soon as he hears it's not David Attenborough, he will get up, he'll be laying down, he'll get up, walk up to the TV and say, all done. And then just walk out the room. It's David Attenborough or nothing. So Blue Planet 2 qualifies, because he narrates. And I've heard the open to this series about hundreds of times. I wish it kept a play count on Amazon Prime like iTunes used to, because it would be up in the hundreds. And so I've heard this quote hundreds of times, but at the beginning of, of episode one, it says, the oceans cover 70% of the surface of our planet, and yet they are still the least explored part of it. Yes, you just heard some quotations from King David. Now you got quotations from twice knighted, not once, but twice knighted David Attenborough. But a lot of times Raj falls asleep towards the end of episode one and episode two starts, which is the deep. And as Attenborough sets the episode up, he makes the statement that the deep ocean is as challenging to explore as space. We know more about the surface of Mars than we do about the deepest parts of our seas. 
And I remember hearing that one night, probably for the 600th time, and thinking, man, isn't that also just a scathing commentary of how we live here on this blue planet? How we will critically observe our neighbors and their behavior, and we'll evaluate and dissect the behavior and actions of celebrities and prominent figures. We're a dedicated, observant critic of others over there. But we avoid turning that same critical eye to ourselves, especially the roots of our emotions and our actions and our behaviors. Why? For the same reason Attenborough said, we've avoided exploring the ocean deep. It's challenging. It's work. And it gets to the point, though, where we know more and have a more critical examination of the proverbial surface of our neighbor than we do the depths of our own lives. How much of the deep of your life has gone unexplored? The innermost parts that David speaks of. Later in that same episode, Attenborough explains that 90% of ocean life lives in these unexplored areas. It's like unseen ocean life. We see 10% of the life in the ocean. And those percentages, 90 and 10%, it calls to mind a leadership principle called the iceberg principle, which is simply the 10% is so often your charisma, your skills, uh, uh, your personality, but that 90% that keeps you afloat is your character. It's, it's the virtue, values of your life, and it's the 90% that'll sink you. How many of us, though, live with a tip of the iceberg spirituality where our reactions, our habits, the scripts we operate from, that makes up the 10% of what people see. But there's that 90%, the emotional wounds, the, the healing we need, the history, the trauma, all the things that go deep. It's why the Hebrew, the word that's translated examine in verse 1, and search in the second to last verse, it means to dig down to the depths. An effective conversion is this turning inward, deep to engage with and heal that 90%. And again, it happens when a person steps into personal responsibility for their emotional healing and development. And maybe you say, hearing the word emotions and responsibility in the same sentence seems odd or maybe even a little awkward because we often think of emotions as hardwired into some deep recess of our brain and then they're triggered by things that happen to us that are often out of our control. We see emotions as irrational, as instinctual, and, and again, triggered by forces outside of us. But Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett is somebody who spent 25 years studying brain scans and physiological studies and, and all these studies on emotions. And she shared her findings in books and articles and TED Talks. And her findings are that emotions aren't hardwired in your brain and then triggered. Matter of fact, you aren't even born with an emotional circuit in your brain. In her words, emotions aren't built in, they are built. Emotions are like guesses, uh, uh, primal reactions based on previous experiences, previous inputs, where all your brain cells are, are popping off, billions of them at the same time, making a prediction. And that, that's how we emote. Now, she could probably explain that a million times better than I just did. But what it means is, bottom line, you have more control over your emotions than you might think you do. And as Dr. Barrett says, as if she's quoting Spider-Man, more control also means more responsibility. More control also comes with a greater responsibility. That's weighty, but that's also empowering. That means you can change and you can leave behind this fixed mindset that I'm a victim to my emotions and what's happened to me in the past and we can step into growth. If you change the ingredients and the inputs in your brain, what you feed on, you can slowly, maybe arduously, but gradually transform your emotional life. 
Emotions can be trained, developed, and refined. It's not as simple as changing your clothes, right, at the beginning of the day, but it's possible. The ingredients and experience you take part in today can shape your emotions tomorrow. An effective conversion is this step into responsibility for my own emotional health and development. But this is where it gets hard and it gets heavy because how many of you know there are things in life, inputs in life, things that happen to you that are totally out of your control. Whether it's a broader cultural scale, hello COVID, or an individual scale in your life, trauma, abuse, a diagnosis, violence, whether it's uh, physical or emotional, these experiences leave traces on our emotions. They can affect our capacity for intimacy. It can affect your immune system. It can make depression and anxiety more than circumstantial and, and become clinical. For some, emotions like anxiety and depression are a domineering fixture. But let me be clear. Whether your emotions are circumstantial or clinical, God doesn't abandon us in it. There's hope. And I'm not just talking about his presence. I'm talking about the very way he designed us, our bodies and our brains. One of the books that were a part of our uh, adoption training process was our us. Let me not get it wrong. The Body Keeps the Score. It's a groundbreaking book. I think it was uh, published in 2014 or republished that outlines how our brains can heal through studies and findings with Vietnam vets and others. So why was that prescribed for an adoptive parent? Well, my son's first couple years of life were marked by trauma. The book talks about the impact that trauma can have on your body, namely your brain. It's not just all in your head. No, it's imprinted in your brain and how it reacts and responds and emotes. And my son languished in an orphanage for the better part of two years before we were able to adopt him, and that left a mark. And as we've raised him for a half decade, we've seen the fruit of that. There are times where he acts out or would get violent, and we realize this isn't even like bad behavior as much as this is trauma being triggered in his life, trauma he did not ask for. But one of the revelations within the book, again, is that brain mapping has shown the brain has a natural neuroplasticity, meaning it's malleable and it can reorganize its connections and functions. Events and experiences shape your mind in profound ways, but not just negatively. It can impact it positively. And over time, through work, medicine, therapy, whatever it may be, people can push and work toward mental and emotional health again. Now get ready to melt. Mackenzie, you can throw that photo up there. This is a picture of Raj at a uh, <laughs> school outing last week at the Portsmouth Children's Museum. And uh, like, it just blew my mind. Because right after we adopted him up to like two years ago, you put him in an atmosphere where kids outnumber adults like an orphanage, where it's chaos <laughs> like an orphanage, and where it's noisy and overstimulating like his orphanage was. It was right off one of the busiest streets in one of the biggest cities in the world. And all of a sudden, he rages, or he would. Like, two years ago, he would have been pulling that girl's hair. <laughs> and now, to see that is fruit. It's fruit. There's growth in, in the way he emotes, in the way he behaves, and there's hope. You begin to change the inputs in a child's mind from cycles of unmet need to cycles of met need, from inconsistency to consistency, to uncertainty to certainty, and assurance and peace, and he'll act different, he'll emote different. And it's beautiful, and I'm gonna brag on him. <laughs> but whether it's a seven-year-old displaying fruit from a half decade, or it's these Vietnam veterans in this book displaying uh, growth through therapy and hard work, there's hope. And returning to Psalm 139, it's believed to be written by David when he became king at age 30. And you read 1 Samuel as I'm reading through right now, 
His teens and 20s were marked by traumatic events. We're talking all kinds of stuff. Emotional and physical assault, attacks with slander, attacks with spears, multiple, as well as various betrayals on personal and national levels. This man had plenty of traumatic stuff to work through. And in his writing, we see him inviting God into his effective conversion. I'd argue it's bookended with David asking God to help him along in his emotional maturity. There are tones of ongoing conversion and sanctification as it opens in the past tense. He says, Lord, you have examined my heart. And then it ends in the present invitation, search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, the heart in that day was symbolic of the seat of our emotions. And again, the Hebrew word translated here to examine and search literally means to dig down to the depths. And the know that follows is yada, which is the most intimate personal knowledge possible between two souls. And maybe you <laughs> like you read that, okay, intimate knowledge, and he knows when I'm sitting down and standing up. Like if God is sovereign over my life and mindful of things, there's a lot of things on the list of priorities before like my physical posture. <laughs> like you ain't got to worry about when I'm sitting down and standing up. There's a lot of other stuff. Could you, could you worry about that a little more? But we should remember that David just isn't a remarkable warrior and leader, musician and king. He was a poet. And he's using something called parallelism, which he does in this and other Psalms, where there's two or three parallel lines dealing with one subject, often emotional, with the latter line clarifying the meaning of the first. So the sitting and rising is imagery in a parallel, and his parallel statement in the next verse speaks to his thought life and his mental health. He says, you know my thoughts even when I'm far away. So the knowledge God knows intimately with sitting and rising isn't just about David's status positionally, but his health mentally. When David's emotions and thoughts have risen into a frenzy, agitated by fear or threats or stress or anxiety, or when he's mentally at rest, God knows. And not just that, he knows why. Right? He knows David more intimately than David even knows himself. And not just that. <laughs> if the creator of the universe knowing your mind state uh, would be radical enough, would be amazing enough, he cares. He cares. David even doubles down on his assertion in verses 7 through 12 with two more uses of, of parallelism. The fact he's everywhere and never leaves us. Going up to the heavens and making my bed in the depths speaks to moving toward God in obedience or away in disobedience. Riding the wings of the dawn and setting on the far side of the sea speak of, in that culture, light being symbolic of truth and order and the sea being symbolic of chaos. And then David says, I love it, in the NIV, even there, whether it's chaos or order, your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. So let me tell you right now, whatever your thought life was like this week, <laughs> this year, whether it would be defined as clear or confused, ordered or chaos, light and airy or dark and depressing, I want to tell you tonight, God knows. And not only that, God cares. Where you find yourself tonight, God's hand will guide you and his right hand will hold you fast. But he doesn't just meet us in our emotions. That, that's not the extent of the sermon tonight. He also calls us to take responsibility for our emotional health. While this is a vast subject, do a whole series on this. I want to give you tonight three acts that we can take, steps we can take as we walk in emotional health. And the first is protect. Protect. Because we often talk about emotions, again, like they happen to us. We catch feelings like we catch a common cold. Emotions are, again, visceral and instinctual rather than intellectual. And when we categorize our emotions as not under our control, we can chalk up and excuse times where they go sideways as, well, that's not me. That's not, we sidestep responsibility. But it's really closer to what Jesus says, the imagery he gives us, that you'll know a tree by its fruit. 
the fruit of our emotions shows what's at our root, our core. And again, the ingredients and experiences in your life today will shape your brain and how it emotes tomorrow. What you feed on will bear fruit. I think that's why when Paul writes his church to the letter in Philippi and he starts it out talking about growing in the fruit of their salvation, he ends that same letter with a list of inputs and ingredients they should be feeding on. He says, fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Applying that in our day, right, as we navigate life, we navigate media, we navigate the things we listen to and we watch, it's going to be a, a level of discernment for you. It's going to be a matter of conscience when you read like Romans 14. But, but <laughs> universally, universally, what you consume, what you feed on is going to affect your emotions. It's going to affect your emotions and the way you emote. And when Paul says, think on these things, he's speaking to what, what you consume, what you're inputting, the thoughts you're going to have. Being responsible for them is how we graduate from living a life that seems at the mercy of our emotions to one that's molding and investing and even protecting. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart. Right? Again, the heart in Scripture speaks to the deepest part of us. It's symbolic for the seat of our emotions. And that's a pivotal verse, right? Shared it all the time. Protect your heart. Guard your heart. But in some circles, this verse has been used to validate keeping bad emotions out, right? Like positive thoughts only, joy of the Lord only. Uh, fruit of the spirit only and protecting your heart has meant uh, keeping anger sadness and a like out but what we're actually doing is just repressing those emotions in order to protect we repress but here's the here's the thing when you bury your emotions alive they don't die no they don't die when you bury hurt pain insecurity shame they don't lay dormant they take root they rot and they bear fruit it's why a pursuit of like constant emotional comfort through repression, can actually derail your emotional health. David certainly doesn't spend psalms in a comfortable emotional flatline of perfect peace. He felt the full range of emotions, and I would say that makes you emotionally healthy. Like, like confession, I got saved at 21. I was a senior at William & Mary. I was about to become a young professional. If you're a young professional tonight, earmuffs. Your life is going to get more stressful from here. <laughs> I had a lot less things to worry about, get angry about, lament, when I was 21 years old, I probably get angry a lot more these days. I lament a lot more these days. I cry a lot more these days. And that's not emotional regression. Like, what if I told you these emotions make you like God? Like, God is emotional. Just this week in 1 Samuel 15, again, I'm reading through 1 Samuel, God laments over Saul's kingship. In Exodus 34, it says God is slow to anger. Deuteronomy 30, he delights in being good to his people. Proverbs 14, God rejoices in wise servants, and he's angry with those who disgrace him. Then you look at John 11. Jesus is at Lazarus' tomb. Within moments of each other, he's crying, and then all of a sudden he's raging. He's, he's angry. You think, man, this guy is like emotionally unstable. No, <laughs> he's feeling the full range of emotions fully. And he didn't sin, and we're called to be Christ-like, right? God created us in this image and called us good. And David, in the same way, he's like, when, when I was in the womb, I wasn't just being formed by my mother. He said, I was, I was formed. You knit me together. You created me just like you created Adam, and you said it was good. Shout out Madeline Harris, right? Shout out to the worship team. Our worship ministry is in good hands. She recommended an album to me, I think it was last week. It's like jazzy, worshipful music. It's by an artist named Victory. 
and there was a song. She just sent me the album link, me and David, and I saw a song where it's like, I don't have to pretend. And I was like, oh, this song will be too relatable. It's about to be emotional terrorism, but I'm going to listen to it. <laughs> and of course, by the time I was done listening to it, I was like in, on the, in the fetal position in my office. But uh, I'm going to try to read it. It says, I don't have to pretend like everything's okay. That's not what Jesus meant when he said to have faith. I'm going to read it. That's so good. I'm going to read it again. I don't have to pretend everything's okay. That's not what Jesus meant when he said to have faith. If you see me crying, I'm being true instead of lying about what I'm going through. I'm trusting God to heal my every wound, and I know he will. He makes all things new. We don't have to pretend when we come to God. We can pour it all out, and that's the second practical step for emotional health and, and, and maintaining emotional health. you got to pour it out. Have to. The last time I preached on this, we examined Psalm 62, where David ends that psalm with the imploring his people to pour out your heart to God. When we see throughout the Psalms, David leads this by example. By some measures, I've seen it estimated half of the Psalms. I've seen others say two-thirds of the Psalms are lament. David lamenting over half the Psalms. And then there's also these Psalms, they're called imprecatory Psalms, or even just portions of the one we read tonight where David gets so mad, it's like uncomfortable. Like you want to see like peak angry David, just go to Psalm 137. You probably have to turn a page. Read like the last verses of that. Whew, you're going to read those of your kids. Those are rated R. He's angry, but he's pouring it out. We see something similar in Psalm 139. It's so funny. He's like, how precious are your thoughts for me? Oh, God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Right? Get out of my life, you murderers. You're like, it's a weird pivot, bro. <laughs> but David pours out anger on the pages of Psalms. And G Jesus himself quotes two of the imprecatory Psalms in the Gospel of John. But for all the anger and emotions in Scripture, the, the, we see, right, you look at the greater context of Scripture, you're going to get, like, guidelines for the ways we express our anger and our emotions. Two questions that we can pull from Scripture. Just with anger, we can apply to our emotions. First, what is it based on? We see in, uh, God confronts Jonah in his anger in, in Jonah 4.9. He asks him, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Now, what's happening is he's pointing to Jonah's irrational anger. At least the irrational fact that he was more angry about this plant dying that was providing him shade in the heat than he was about the entire city of Nineveh's destiny <laughs> because of his racism. And he's like, what is this anger based on really? What is this anger based on really? And is it rational? But secondly, how is it expressed? I love, I don't have a life verse, but on bad days, Ephesians 4, 26 in the New King James Version becomes my life verse. It's called, it says, be angry. Just kidding, don't do that. It, it, it says, be angry, but don't sin in your anger. So we can quickly deduce here that anger in and of itself is not sinful. Jesus felt anger. He was without sin. You're going to feel angry, and that's okay, and in some cases, that's good. You see an injustice. You feel a righteous anger. You act on that. That's good. The opposite of that is being passive and a coward. But of course, context is key. <laughs> Verse 26 Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He's laying the groundwork for what he's going to say in verse 31. Get rid of your anger. The point is, emotions like anger will happen, sometimes rightfully so. Somebody offends you. <laughs> you witness injustice. You get angry. You feel a righteous anger, but you don't get to keep it. Like we'll talk about later, naming your emotions is powerful, but you don't name it so you make it your pet and it takes up residence in your life because then that just breeds bitterness, cynicism, resentment, we can catch feelings, but it's like when you, I was fishing as a kid. We didn't eat the fish. It was catch and release. <laughs> I might catch it, but then I let it go. I might get angry, but I got to let it go. I got to pour it out. Because if you don't pour it out, it's going to leak. 
It's going to leak into your marriage. It'll leak into your workplace. It'll leak into your parenting. You've got to pour it out somehow. You've got to pour it out. If we don't talk out our emotions, we'll end up taking them out, either on ourselves or others. We need to not just protect our heart and mind because they're, they're, they feed and fuel our emotions. We need to make sure we're pouring out. And I'll just give you three channels for this. I'm, I'm addicted to peace tonight. Three channels to direct this outpour. Because you're not just called to come into church and just like, ah, you know, just dump on everybody. Three channels for healthy outpouring, processing people, prayer. Get into therapy, get into community, get into God's presence. Now, when I, I, we'll come back to prayer in a second. But when I say processing, diving in, like, like starting this work of emotional healing, diving into that 90% for the first time, I mean processing with a professional. Talking to your spouse can be therapeutic. Talking to a pastor can be therapeutic. But your pastor, at least speaking for us, we're not a therapist. Your spouse is not a therapist. They're professionals. And when I say people, I mean people who are there for you consistently, who when they ask you how are you doing, they don't get the, the pat answer. You, they get the honest answer. That's how you know those are the people. Those are the community. I'm not talking about go to church. I'm blessed. No. <laughs> people that are consistently in touch, and you can just tell them how you're feeling. But I love that we've slowly kind of been unmasking therapy in our culture, especially church culture. It's something that's not taboo. It's a, it's a blessing. It's not a threat for your kids. It's not a punishment when you've screwed up, and it's not a last resort. That's why Steph and I are in marital counseling, and we've been in marital counseling. Because we, we're not dumb. We know the stats. Families with these health conditions, we're, by the stats, we're doomed, right? Families with kids with special needs might as well have the divorce papers, like, printed out and stapled and laying on a table ready. But, or, <laughs> we could be proactive. We could work, use therapy as a tool, and, and maintain health. Do we, do we need God? Yes, duh, okay? If you, you're asking that question, I'll, I can talk to you afterwards. We all need God. I need, we need the power of God. Like, I pray every day that I'll be able to show Steph the love that Christ has for the church and, and Raj the love that God the Father has for us that's unconditional. I need, like, God to empower me in that. I need biblical counsel. I need theology, but I also need therapy. It's part of me taking responsibility for my emotional health. For us, it's ongoing. I would just say, if you're going to start this journey, do it. True story, I saw both my primary care physician and my therapy over the last week, and both took time to listen to my heart. One with a stethoscope, one with questions, and, and, and earnest listening. And again, I need both. We need both. We've too long prioritized uh, the physical body over the mind and our physical health over our mental health and physical pain over emotional pain. Like, if I break my leg, you're not going to say to me, shake it off, <laughs> right? Pray it away. We shouldn't do the same either with depression or anxiety, right? We're so guilty of saying, well, pray it away, right? We need prayer, but not at the expense of practical help. I even think of like in Isaiah when Hezekiah is, is healed. I think it's there. Sue me later if it's not. When he's healed, he's like, okay, you're healed. Now go treat the wound, right? We, we have practical steps to take, even alongside the prayer. But also I need therapy, but certainly not at the, express, at the expense of prayer. It's the third practical step to walking in emotional healing. Pray. I love that David doesn't just leave this psalm a poetic exercise and, and sign off. Verses 23 and 24 are this beautiful, small, humble prayer. And I'm obligated to uh, honor Tim Keller, who just passed a couple weeks ago. Um, he has this quote on prayer. He calls psalms a school of prayer. 
I think it was in a book called Prayer, but he wrote a book like every three months, so it was hard to keep up. But I think it's in the book called Prayer, where he says there are other prayers in the Bible, but no other place where you have an entire course of theology in prayer form. And no other place where you have every possible heart condition represented, along with the way to process that situation before God. Even the Lord's Prayer is more a summary of what we must pray, while the Psalms are a comprehensive program in how to pray it. Man, was pretty smart. <laughs> but what do we learn from the Psalms? That you don't have to keep your pain out of your prayers. You don't have to keep your mess out of your prayers. You get to make an exchange, right? You get to cast your cares onto God. Scripture invites us to do that, and then you get to invite him into your mess. Shouldn't keep you away. <laughs> Should get me running to him. John 14, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a counselor. And I love in Isaiah 9 where it talks of the coming Messiah as a wonderful counselor. Now, what makes him wonder? What makes him worthy of wonder? Again, David uses this word for knowledge that God has for us as the most intimate possible. God knows more about me than I know about myself. He knows the motivations, the scripts, the desires I operate from more than I do. <laughs> he knows the guilt and shame that's been buried. He knows about proverbial skeletons in the closet. The reality with any counselor and therapist is they only know as much as you tell them. But God knows everything before I even do it, right? He knows everything. His counsel is perfect. I would be a fool to not take my emotions and my mess to God. And I'll land the plane tonight with this. Again, he pivots from poetry to prayer for the final two verses, and he gives us three questions we can ask as we invite God in prayer into our emotions and our emotional development and healing. And they're found in these three requests. Search me, test me, and lead me. Again, search me means to dig to the deepest depths the innermost being. David is asking God to open his eyes to the places in his life he is unaware of or unwilling to deal with. Like we all have blind spots, but we also should ask, are there parts of my life I've avoided, I've neglected, or I've kept from God? Have I only given God the tip of the iceberg? And maybe it's, it's, it's not from a bad perspective, it's just a flawed perspective that I can't go to God with my mess, that, that my mess is keeping me from God. No, you bring it, that's a lie. Right? Invite him in to your mess. You don't have to avoid it. You don't have to neglect it. You don't have to keep it from God. And then he says, test me. And it speaks to refining a metal, right? Refining the impurities. Because we will all have impure thoughts. And I'm not just talking about sexual thoughts because that's what we so often talk about with impure thoughts. I'm just talking about thoughts that don't line up with God's truth. We have to test and cross-examine them and say, is this true? One of the most powerful things my therapist has said to me of late is, well, that's a lie from the pit of hell. It's like dramatic, right? But it got the point across. He saw something that didn't line up with God's truth and he called it out. And that's what David is asking God to help him in. He wants to make sure his anxious thoughts aren't rooted in lies and flawed thinking. Because listen, your emotions are valid. Your emotions that you feel are real. But what you believe to be true based on your emotions may not be. Right, the conclusions you draw about yourself, about others, based on your emotions, may be a lie from the pit of hell, as my therapist would say. Naming and identifying emotions is, is a powerful practice that a good therapist will walk you through because it's, it's disempowering, borderline traumatic to have something in your life, like in your chest, your gut, that's, that's messing with the way you're thinking and behaving and not being able to name what it is. It can decrease the effect, distance you from them, make them less consuming. But I'd say this, naming your emotions is a powerful tool, but identifying with them can be crippling. Because again, many of us deal with anxiety, depression, relentlessly. 
But listen to me tonight. That's not your identity. Don't let that get wrapped up in your identity. You're a child of God, right? But so often struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety, right? That doesn't mean you, you aren't in deep communion with God. It just means you're human. And so often in the church when we struggle with these, these raw emotions and, it, and it's persistent, maybe it's even clinical, right? We, we, the old adage used to be pray harder, <laughs> get more in God's word. If you're in deeper communion with God, you'll be okay. Basically try harder. So then what gets added onto the, the depression and anxiety is guilt and shame. And what I simply want to tell you tonight is if you're struggling with depression, you're struggling with anxiety, you might not be able to lay that down at the altar tonight and walk away wholly healed, but what you can and should and must lay down is the guilt and the shame. Leave that tonight. So <laughs> we have to ask, is what I feel based on my emotions true? Because again, the Bible will tell you that you're beloved, you're a son and daughter of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, your counselor who wants to constantly remind you of these truths so that you can get rid of the lies and the impure thoughts. But lastly, David requests of God, lead me. Because being led by your emotions can be hit or miss. And that's probably being kind. Sometimes it might lead you into compassion or fighting for justice, but it can also miss the mark wildly. Recently, I was listening. I love Erwin McManus. He, he has a podcast. He was talking about mastering yourself. Um, but he talked about mastering emotions, and it applied directly to what we're talking about tonight. And he said, you have to establish a principle that your emotions do not give you a right to your actions. You have to establish a principle that your emotions do not give you a right to your actions. And what he's saying is just because you feel something, it's legitimate what you're feeling. It doesn't legitimize acting on that feeling, right? This applies directly to taking responsibility for our emotional growth. I will feel emotions in life. I will rightly respond to them, but I had to ask constantly, am I being led in this response by my emotions or the Holy Spirit? I have a choice to make constantly. I can choose to be led by my emotions or I can choose to be led by the Holy Spirit and the, the wisdom and discernment I can have through God's truth. My goal is to have responses from emotions that are spirit-led and informed by God's truth. That's the end game of effective conversion in my life. And I don't just do it for me. I don't just do it for Steph in our marriage. I do it for, for Raj. I do it for my son. How many of you guys know what you don't process, you can pass on? What you don't heal can harm your kids. I'm not talking generational curses, right? That's a whole other sermon for another time. Uh, you go to Protagonist Anonymous, though, we preached it. Uh, chorus kids. We can use that as an excuse. It's a generational curse. No, we can do the work of healing. We can do the work of healing. We do well to remember, remind ourselves, again, I'm a son I'm a daughter of God. That's my identity. I'm feeling these things, but that's my identity. We should remind ourselves again and again. Raj is doing this thing. I'm probably going to cry talking about it, but hey, it's a sermon on emotion, so it is what it is. <laughs> he again fixates on uh, not just episodes. I'm talking he fixates on like 30-second clips, one minute of a movie here or there, and, and he just wants to watch it over and over again. If I lose my sanity next week, it's because I just heard the, the same 15 seconds of the family Madrigal from Encanto for the 6,000th time. I apologize in advance. But he, uh, he's been fixated on the beginning of Tarzan. I don't know if you've seen Tarzan. I don't know if I've seen Tarzan from beginning to end. But uh, he loses his parents. I don't know why Disney movies always, like, the, the first five minutes is always just trauma. Like, it's just like, what is happening? So, like, <laughs> everyone... So Tarzan, he loses his parents in like the first 30 seconds. And then this gorilla mom loses her baby to a jaguar. And I'm just watching this. I'm like, dude, this is, I'm going to write a psalm right now. <laughs> but so she loses her baby. 
he loses his parents and, and he's alone in this crib with a blanket over him and he's crying. And the mom gorilla hears him and uh, she adopts him into the family. And Raj, for whatever reason, doesn't just want to watch this over and over again. He wants to act it out. He'll take a blanket and put it over him and he'll start crying and whimpering like, <laughs> and then Steph's supposed to come over and be like, oh baby, pick him up, smell his diaper like she does in the movie. Like, oh. He wants to act it out again and again and again, this, the process of being adopted. And I love it. And it's beautiful. And we need to do that. Remember that our adoption as a son and daughter of God. Inner child is a term used often in psychology as a person's true self that's often concealed by negative childhood experiences, isolated, shamed, lonely. But I've come to love this verse in Psalm 68, verse 6. It says, God sets the lonely in families. There's a home for our inner child, right? Relationship with God the Father in the family of faith alongside Jesus. It's why we have this welcome home moment weekly, right? Pausing to go over the truth of the gospel, <laughs> the beauty of the gospel. Because there are people here that are going to need to hear it for the first time, but we need to remember, recall again and again and again what Jesus has done for us. Like Raj reenacting that scene from Tarzan. Remember that we're welcomed home. Remember that in spite of whatever we're feeling that week, as David says in verse 5, you place your hand of blessing on my head. You might think, why would he do that when I'm so unworthy? Because you're his kid. He places his hand of blessing on my head. You, do, you did that in that culture to bless a child. You would place your hand on their head and speak that blessing over them. Listen, my prayer for you, I was praying before service so clearly. My prayer for you tonight is that whatever is weighing on your heart, that you would feel God's hand of blessing on your head. No matter what's weighing on your heart, you would feel God's hand of blessing on your head over your life and the beautiful assurance of his love. But... Let me, let me call the worship team up. Let's, let's wrap this up. God, I pray that each person here, like Raj reenacted that scene over and over again, God, we would remember, remember our identity, who we are. And God, no matter what emotion we're feeling, God, that you would begin to in Psalm 51, it says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And God, those other emotions may come in waves, but it is true, God, that your joy is our strength. So, God, I pray, God, that for each person here tonight, God, that you would remind us of how you see us. You would remind us of what you speak over us. And, God, like Psalm 68, you set the lonely in families. God, I pray that, that we would find a community, we would find a people, and, God, we would find you in prayer, find you in your presence. So even now we praise and worship you. Let's stand as we go back into worship. But God, I pray that not only would we be found by you, but we would find you. We would know you and be known by you. This desire we talk about with every welcome home moment, to know you and be known by you. God, I pray that you, we would know the truth of how you see us, your love, your grace, your mercy. Let's remind ourselves in song as we close.